You're listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with Megan Daum, now on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now for ridiculously low gas prices, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Now, there's a letter I remember from a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, where this woman was just enraged to find out that her husband was sneaking off to go to a family wedding because her, his family didn't want her to come lest she disrupt the wedding and make a scene. And then she goes on to describe all the ways in which she disrupted the wedding and made a scene, including punching her husband in the face uh, and getting into screaming matches with his sisters. Uh, and she wants me to side with her. It's like, he, he was obviously right. And uh, I, I, my advice was very sarcastic. I was like, oh, girl, girl, he's bad. You should divorce him. You should definitely divorce him. He's bad. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week, whose voice you just heard, is author and legendary sex columnist and activist Dan Savage. But before I formally introduce him and start the interview, I have a couple of items of business. If you heard last week's episode, you heard me talk about some changes to the podcast as well as to the Patreon page. The podcast, as you may have noticed from the little icon on the show logo, is now part of the Podcast One Network. This changes nothing about the show other than you may start hearing some ads. If the ads are a bridge too far, you can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and support the podcast at any level and get not only ad-free versions of the show, but also early access. And that means you'll be able to hear it on the Friday evening or Saturday morning before the public version goes up on Mondays. As I've been promising for a long time, I mean it this time, I am going to be offering more stuff for Patreon supporters. There are various things in the works, but for starters, I've had a lot of requests for meetup groups or discussion groups or some kind of event series that could foster a sense of community for listeners. Um, and I love that idea. So with that in mind, I am announcing right now the first official unspeakable virtual hangout. This will take place on Zoom on Thursday, August 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. This will be free and available to the public and probably last about an hour and a half. Patreon supporters at any level can join me uh, for half an hour before the event in the green room for a more intimate hangout, whatever that means. So we can talk about the show and 
people can get to know one another. The topic, at least the main topic uh, for the event itself, is the subject of last week's episode, which was a monologue I did about what I call the tyranny of the mid-career pivot. This had to do with the way the changing professional landscape has forced a lot of people to recalibrate the structure of their careers. Um, I talked about this very much through a Generation X lens, but I think it applies to people of all ages, especially anyone over 40. And I think this can make a really fruitful discussion. So if you're interested, please join it on August 19th. And the way you do that is to go to the podcast website, theunspeakablepodcast.com, and click on the link for the event. And from there, you'll get a Zoom link. Again, Patreon supporters are VIPs who can join me in the green room half an hour before the show. And I will be there for both parts, obviously. Needless to say, this is the first time I'm doing this. So I would just ask that you be patient if we run into any glitches. Okay, second item of business. In case you're wondering about the follow-up I promised to the July 5th episode with Jolene and Marie, those were the two moms talking about their kids' gender dysphoria and declarations of transgender identities. I can tell you that it is in the works. Uh, This subject is a tree with many, many branches going out in all different directions. And suffice it to say, I've had many conversations with people holding many different views, and I'm trying to do everything I can to bring some sort of balance to whatever I end up presenting. I'm still figuring it all out, but I may end up doing a sort of special package separate from the regular podcast feed and releasing it as a standalone kind of thing. I'm not sure yet. Um, Part of the reason for that is that I have covered the subject of transgender kids a lot on this podcast. And frankly, I'd like to lean away from it a bit. Uh, That said, it does come up in the conversation you're about to hear with Dan Savage, though not uh, until toward the end. And he actually schools me a bit about part of the way I've been looking at this issue. Uh, So with that, I will introduce Dan uh, and then shut up for a while. So Okay, Dan. Dan Savage, this week's guest, is an author, media pundit, journalist, LGBT activist. He writes the Savage Love column, an internationally syndicated relationship and sex advice column, and hosts the popular Savage Lovecast podcast. This fall marks the 30th anniversary of the Savage Love column, and he has a new book called Savage Love from A to Z coming out in September. Here's our conversation. Everyone thinks I'm really tech savvy because of the Santorum campaign, because if it gets better going viral, because, you know, I was one of the original gangster podcasters. And it's always been because I'm an idiot. I, I, I can't, I have my boy, literally, I'm like the guy who's has to call someone in the room to turn on the TV for me. <laughs> I'm actually sitting in a room where I was not able to turn the TV on last night. I'm house sitting right now. So um, it's kind of, Ironic that we're recording a podcast, but the TV remains uh, completely. I, I completely messed it up, no doubt. Anyway, um, well, <laughs> you know, people talk about having face blindness. <laughs> I have remote blindness. There yeah. are four remotes yeah. to turn on our televisions, yeah. and I can't tell them apart. And one of them is clearly for the air conditioner, but I just, <laughs> I just continued to point it at the TV. Anyway, uh, well, Dan Savage, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a I'm a listener and a subscriber, and I I enjoy your uh, nuanced as fuck takes all the time. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm a longtime fan. Obviously, you've been on my list for a long time. I don't. I really don't have a, a set agenda conversationally. Um, just kind of curious about about a couple things, but we can uh, take this wherever it goes. I mean, I guess my my first question. Uh, you have a new book coming out, um, and you've been dispensing advice since the early 90s. What, 1991? Is that when Nin- you... Yeah, you this September it? is the 30th anniversary of Savage Love, my syndicated oh my advice column. It started in The Stranger in Seattle. It is unnerving to get letters from grown-ass adults with children who tell me that their parents were reading my column before they were born. It makes me want to curl up on the floor in the fetal position and die. Well, it's... And fetal is is the the word to use because it may have <laughs> caused these people to be conceived and born in the first place, potentially. Uh, possibly, I may have brought people together, but I'm a huge advocate of uh, uh, birth control, anal, and abortion. So I may okay. have prevented more fetuses than I prompted. <laughs> well, you know, with technology, you never know. Anal, anal <laughs> could always be on the table. Well, so you've been dispensing advice for three decades now. How how have the have the questions? or advice seeking changed over that time? Do you have any sense of being able to trace certain cultural arcs along the lines of your column? Well, the the big meteor strike was the arrival of the internet. I was writing the column for some years before the internet came along. And writing a sex advice column in the, the early 90s, people would hear the word butt plug and not know what a butt plug was. And they would think it was some cork that incontinent gay men shoved in their asses so they didn't shit all over the bus. And so they would write me saying, what's a butt plug? I heard my friends are talking about it. I heard a butt, someone say butt plug. What's a butt plug? And I could write a whole column about what a butt plug. It's, it looks like a lava lamp. It goes in your ass. It's not about incontinence. It's not a cork. Uh, it's a sex toy and it's really fun. And it's a great sort of uh, training wheel sex toy for straight guys who want to see what anal stuff feels like without having to put something that looks like a dick in their ass. And I would write those columns, but now, at some point, along came the internet and suddenly butt plugs have a Wikipedia page, as does fist fucking, as does all sorts of things I used to have to explain as a sex advice columnist. And so all the letters went from, you know, 80%, what's this and how do I do that, to all situational ethics, all, I did this, they did that, who's right, who's wrong, and having to, having to like always be, you know, Solomon cutting the baby in half week after week after week. It's a lot more stressful. It's really hard to screw up a what's a butt plug question. It's really easy to screw up, you know, basically what Reddit dubbed, am I the asshole? Those are really easy to to issue a fucked up ruling on. And so my job got you know, around 90, you know, 7, 98, 99, and into the 2000s as everyone came online, my job got a lot more difficult. So that's interesting. And do you think those two things are exactly related because there there is a phenomenon of just having more information knowing what these things are but then also it sounds like you're describing something that has to do with consent you know the rise of awareness around consent is 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 that what you mean or is it just that like they they didn't need to ask questions about what was what anymore so they had moved on to sort of ethical quandaries yeah it just filtered out the you know people who want to know what a butt plug was or how to get an arm in their asshole uh had wiki pages and internet and youtube instruction manuals to turn to and they didn't need to wait three weeks you know or two weeks for a letter to get published possibly maybe in an advice column they could just google it at a certain point uh and they did 
Right. So what were you most surprised when you started seeing the changes? Did you find that people were, ironically enough, more uptight about sex, that they were sort of second guessing themselves? Was was that the kind of flavor of the anxiety or was it something more broad? Someone it's it's not that um, culture worry, I guess. It's more just someone wants to be told that they were right. And that's a, a truth of the human condition going back to probably the beginning of humans. Uh, this is what happened. Tell me I'm right. And I don't always tell people that they're right. You know, you can only give advice with the evidence at hand with the facts and evidence. Uh, but it sometimes isn't that hard to tease out that the the letter writer is the is in the wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like I, you uh, often tell people they're wrong. <laughs> I, I do often tell people they're wrong. <laughs> there's a God, there's a letter I remember from a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, where this woman was just enraged to find out that her husband was sneaking off to go to a family wedding because her, his family didn't want her to come lest she disrupt the wedding and make a scene. And then she goes on to describe all the ways in which she disrupted the wedding and made a scene, including punching her husband in the face uh, and getting into screaming matches with his sisters. Uh, and she wants me to side with her. It's like, wow, he, he was obviously right. And uh, I, I, my advice was very sarcastic. I was like, Oh girl, girl, he's bad. You should divorce him. You should definitely divorce him. He's bad. Uh, and He's someone that's self-serving, maybe she didn't see through uh, my sarcasm, but hopefully in the end, uh, he was uh, freed from her. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, like, would you say that people who would write into somebody like you are generally, like, self-aware enough that they they are perhaps more likely to be right than wrong? Or are people just kind of not <laughs> able to perceive their behavior? Uh, people can't smell their own shit, right. even if right. they're, you know, they can accurately smell someone else's shit from a thousand yards and, and can't smell their own when it's on their upper lip. So there's nothing about writing to me that I think indicates somebody's likelier to be in the right or correctly perceiving things. I can't often correctly perceive what I'm doing or how my behavior is impacting people. Yeah. You need that outside perspective. That's why people turn to advice columnists and idiots like me. Do you think that you are a wise person about your own life? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to be the person in my web of intimate relationships that everybody comes to, to like parse things out. I, I have the ability, even if I'm implicated or involved to, to take the, the 500 foot view. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. You know, I, I think I can see my own shit or my own complicity or my own bad actions at times or my own screwed up motivations uh, after I've had a minute to, to to think about it and examine it from afar. Um, I don't think everybody has that. You know, our lives are the story we tell ourselves about ourselves yeah. and the people around us. Um, and I have this sense that I am an unreliable narrator and I'm always questioning what I'm doing. But that makes you reliable. It's kind of like if you think you're crazy, you're not crazy. Exactly. You know? But so the reason I asked was because I a year or so ago, somebody asked if I wanted to write an advice column for a certain a, a publication. And I immediately I was like, oh, yes, that would be great. 
because it's like a writing prompt every week. Like, exactly. You know, how, it's yes. going to be so easy and I don't have to come up with an idea. And the minute they sent me some some questions, I was going to do a sample. And I was like, no way am I doing this. I could never <laughs> do this. And it's because I really just feel like, who am I to uh, to presume to to tell people how to live their lives? In this case, it wasn't like relationship advice, although it might have gotten to that it was sort of like ethics at the office, you know, because I get, you know, too much into this culture war stuff. So it was a little bit like, oh, what do I do if, you know, there's some kind of generational conflict at, at work? And, you know, my first thought was, well, God, I haven't had an office job, you know, <laughs> since 1992. <laughs> so I'm not qualified to answer this. But I, I, I notice in myself, like the older I get, the, uh, the less I feel like I have any, uh, any sort of right to tell anybody how to live their life. I feel like my life is just more eccentric and its own thing and not really worth uh, well, setting would, down as an example for anybody. Would you like my advice for someone thinking about writing an advice column? Well, I'm not thinking about it anymore, but sure. <laughs> well, don't. I don't want any more competition. It used to be hard to get it an advice column. It would have been competition for you, but okay. <laughs> but, you know, people for you since the first week the column came out, what qualifies you? What qualifications do you have? None. The only qualification, you know, when people people usually are meaning like, did you go to shrink school? Do you have a degree in psychology? Are you a therapist? I'm like, no. But the only qualification you need to give advice is someone asked you for it. You look up advice in the dictionary and it says opinion about what could or should be done. So the bar, as I think I've proved week after week, proven week after week after week for mm -hmm. 30 years, is set really low and anybody can do this and it's not binding arbitration. Which is sometimes, you know, people who get mad at you for the advice you gave react to it as if everyone that you gave perhaps the shitty advice that week, maybe you missed the mark, everyone involved was obligated to, you know, was finding arbitration. They had to do what you said. And nobody has to do what you say. And so the stakes are low and the required qualifications are nil. You're just batting things around and thinking out loud. And okay, well, that's good. I can handle that. But sometimes, okay. So you don't, I, I feel like it would be, if, if I could sit there with a person and we could bat it around, I think I could do that. But actually definitively answering. But that's, that's just answering, not definitively yeah. answering. Right, okay. okay. You know, what was great about, I grew up reading Ann Lander's column. Yeah. Abigail Van Buren's and Xavier Hollander's column in my brother's Penthouse magazines. And in a way, they kind of pioneered the a little bit of the blog format that would one day come along. You know, Ann Landers would write a column and then people who disagreed with her would send her a bunch of letters and she would respond to those letters in her column. And it wasn't just the letters were prompts and then she moved on. Right. She engaged with her readership and she had a daily column that ran in, you know, 500 newspapers or something. It was everywhere. Uh, and so she had a lot of space and a lot of time and could, you know, continue the conversation in a way that readers could follow it on a daily basis in the same way kind of blogs would do one day. If you only come out once a month, once a week, it's hard to keep an interactive, engaged conversation right. going. Right. But I, I grew up reading them and I grew up reading them and I saw that Ann Landers didn't always have their last word. She wasn't always right. And she was always thinking. And yeah. she was wrong about shit that touched me, uh, like touched on me. She was very wrong about homosexuality. I was reading incredibly homophobic things in her column right. when I was 10 and reading less homophobic things in her column when I was 17. Did you listen to uh, advice givers on the radio ever? Like, no. Uh, 
oh, I'm just, I haven't thought about this in years, but I'm remembering not just Dr. Ruth. I mean, I remember being like, you know, school age or, you know, to eight, nine, 10, that kind of thing. And listening to Dr. Ruth, like on my little AM clock radio <laughs> with the volume so, 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 so low so that there would be no way my parents could hear it. But then even there were like these shrinks, like one of them, one of them, certain not, not Dr. Laura Schlesinger, not she was intolerable, but like there were some like a couple like really harsh shrinks. Um, and they weren't, they weren't really political. They weren't harsh in like a church lady kind of way, but they were, they were tough. Um, you know, like pull your act together kind of thing. Uh, and in a way that you just, you don't hear anymore for, for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, I wonder like, do you, have you kind of, um, loosened up over the years? I mean, you, you know, you are for, for the 50 something grouchy Gen Xer, you've adjusted pretty well to the, to the current climate, but, um, do you ever find yourself having to kind of check your, uh, check your, your, you know, tough love approach? <laughs> yes. I, I have to couch things in more compassionate language. I, I think I still tell people what I actually think and when I think they're wrong, but I used to go after people in a kind of performative assholery way uh, for laughs and I enjoyed it and maybe it wasn't always fair, but my argument, you know, when the column was much meaner uh, in the nineties was people write me who read me. And so they know right. wh what they're getting into. I really trace the softening of my advice or my approach. I, I like to think I'm still funny, but uh, to, to starting the, the, the podcast you know, more than 12 years ago, however long it was ago, because suddenly I was hearing people's voices and it was very different than just reading their emails or reading their letters back in the day. God, I missed it when we went to email, when I went to email. Because you would read a letter and you would get a sense for someone from their handwriting. Yeah. You'd get a sense for their age. You'd get a sense for how vulnerable they were. You really, you know, how you could tell sometimes that someone was nervously writing you a letter or super upset. Uh, I remember getting letters where I could see the tear stains, what I thought were tear stains on Oh, my them. gosh. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. But that was really rare. And, and then you went to yeah. email and like you couldn't get a sense of anything. And, and sometimes right. it was, you know, the helpful information, you know, somebody claimed to be a 15-year-old girl sleeping with a 50-year-old man and just loving his dick. And it was written in a fountain pen on a legal pad. <laughs> it was like, that's not from a 15-year-old girl. That's from the 50-year-old man fantasizing about a 15-year-old girl, right? Uh, but when it shifted to email, I couldn't make those distinctions anymore. And then along comes the podcast and I'm hearing people's voices. I can hear the pain in people's voices. Sometimes I get people on the phone and they're still in pain. And even if they're wrong, they're hurting and I have to find a way to get them to see that they're wrong without gratuitously salting what may have been a self-inflicted wound, but mm -hmm. without salting. But do you think that they are hurting for reasons that are particular to this to this moment i mean there's been a lot of talk obviously just about the way parenting has changed the way you know really good you know anti-bullying campaigns in the in the <laughs> 90s and the aughts that are that were great i mean i want to talk about it gets better but you know these were all very much for the good and very well intended but there are you know people who study these things who say you know on the other hand there's a there is a lack of resilience. I mean, these concepts all sound like cliches now because people talk about them often and like not sufficiently, you know, with, without their due complexity. But do you see those kinds of tendencies in your in your readers? And do you ever just bristle at them? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm having a feeling, so everything has to stop, as if a feeling is a trump card or proof or vindication. And that can incentivize the having of feelings uh, in a way that we may not even be consciously aware of if they can be weaponized uh, or they can give us confer advantage. And so, yeah, I sometimes see people who believe that the feeling they're having is more important than the facts they can marshal or Mm -hmm. them having a feeling is a trump card, but somebody else having a feeling is an attack. I think trump card is a triggering phrase, though. I'm surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised that nobody's like talked about that. You know, it trumps such and such. Yeah. So do you tell them that? Do you actually yeah. say, get over yourself? Yeah, all the time. Still, I say that. And, and in my experience, people can hear it still. Right, right. And, so- and, and, and want to hear it. And also people want to hear other people being told that. Yes. Well, that feels great. <laughs> the, the schadenfreude of watching somebody get dressed down for um for being leading with their emotions to to the point of illogic is it's like a blood sport um and i'm i'm not proud to say that but i mean you so you and your husband terry started the it, it gets better initiative in 2010 i think mm-hmm. is that right mm-hmm. that was specifically targeted at lgbt youth um having to do with high suicide rates now, I know you were talking largely about things getting better on an individual basis for people. You know, you will escape your hometown. You will get out of high school. But more than 10 years has passed and things have gotten better in a lot of ways. I mean, there have been things, you know, same-sex marriage was recognized in 2015. There's emergence of trans visibility, that kind of thing. At the same time, people say things have never been worse. Right. So, Dan, I wonder, yeah, I got, I got a note right. a couple of weeks ago. Dan, the ocean is on fire. Anytime oh. a bad thing happens, I get an email from somebody saying, are you the it gets better guy? The ocean's on fire. Aren't you the it gets better guy? <laughs> there was a gay bashing in Spain um, and a very brutal one. And you no, know, that I read, was reading about it, and then somebody wrote me saying nothing's improved. And okay. I sometimes right. feel like we should have done the it gets better campaign with four asterisks after it, it gets better. Individual results may vary. Right. It, it right. gets better. That doesn't mean everything's perfect. That doesn't mean bad things can't happen and happen to you or happen at the macro level. Um, it gets better if you actually watch the videos. And and maybe I'm not the greatest copywriter in the world, uh, but obviously that, that, that phrase took off in a way and it spoke to people in a way that we hoped it would. But what it was about was agency. It gets better. You have some say. You'll have some control. You can make some changes. It wasn't about sitting back passively waiting for the world to change around you. If you watch It Gets Better videos, it's all people talking about what they did to -hmm. extricate themselves from a shitty situation, what they did to move their families or get away from their families that their families just weren't going to come around. And it was strategies, coping mechanisms war plans for queer kids you know who from queer adults who had the benefit of you know having walked a path that for most queer adults was not illuminated for us and giving the benefit of that illumination to other queer kids you know queer adults don't raise the next generation of queer kids and when i founded the project one of the things i talked about was how the deal the culture made us for some decades even after stonewall was you're ours to torture until you're 18. Once you're 18, you can do what you want. You can come out, you can move away, 
baby will come around, your family will come around on you. There's just one thing you can't do once you're 18, and that's talk to the teenagers that we're still torturing in the same schools, churches, sometimes in the same families where you were tortured. And if you try to talk to them, if you reach out to them because you empathize, because you understand, because you ache for them, we will accuse you of recruiting. We will accuse you of being pedophiles. Mm. And because those interactions until the internet came along had to be face-to-face, you had to be in the same room, um, those accusations of recruiting and pedophilia or a sexual uh, motivation uh, or, you know, additional motivation – um, had some power, you know, they were inhibiting. Uh, and it was a bit negative that was hard to disprove, right, for some folks. And then along comes the internet and we can suddenly talk to every queer kid without being in the same room, without them having to get to a queer youth support group that their parents might not take them to or that they'd have to sneak into and sneak out of or worry about who else might be there who might know them and gossip spreading. They could get on the internet and watch YouTube videos and hear from, you know, one of my favorite videos was this kid who is still like 19 years old or 18 years old only saying to other kids being bullied in high school, you don't have to finish high school. I took mm. my GED and went right to community college and got That's, the fuck away from all those assholes. That's a great piece of advice. Yes, it is. It totally is. Especially if people who are like good students, it would probably never cross their mind, right? Right. That you can bail. And it's not on, you know, some people, there was some pushback, it gets better, you know, at the time, that we should be telling all these queer kids to come out and to fight to make Mm. it better. Uh, There was a make it better counter project, it gets better, that you have to do something. And that was, I thought, a really privileged take because not everybody's in a position to come out. You know, coming out is often presented by the LGBT movement, particularly when I was young and gay, and it has forever, as the end to all your problems, when in reality, it's the beginning of new problems. Right. And it could be the beginning of fatal problems. If you come out at 15 and your family that you suspected might be violent reacts violently, that might not have been the best choice. And listening to some you know, other high school student or other gay adult in San Francisco or Seattle or Chicago tell you on your Mormon compound in Utah that you should come out and fight and change that community. Right. Not always the best advice. Not always realistic, not meeting kids where sometimes they are, which is where they are. And the best advice can sometimes be hang in there. Right. That's, but that's sort of this, uh, is this is what they, you know, and sometimes it's like the naturalistic fallacy this is referred to. Like just because something should be a certain way doesn't mean it is that way and you have to work with how it is. Like it would be great if we could make it better and kids could come out whenever they wanted to and, you know, all communities were enlightened, but it's never going to be that way. So there does have to be a strategy. It's interesting that you use that word because sometimes I feel like younger activists don't like the word strategy, like they shy away from it. Like, oh, you're just, you know, we, we can't wait any longer. And, and you know, you're, you're denying the urgency of this. Like being strategic is somehow uh, not recognizing the pain that they feel. Yeah. Or being strategic, you know, having your eye on some larger goal and all the different ways you could possibly achieve that is to betray yourself 
or betray the world. Uh, this is you know, reaching outside of the the queer experience. Uh, I always think of um, affirmative action. Exactly. If yeah. you do, like, increasingly, it's impossible to do race based affirmative action, and eventually, it may be impossible. And there was a proposal many years ago in Washington State, where I live and was writing at the time about politics, to do class based affirmative action. I think that's smart. I think strategically, you will achieve most of the benefits that you would get with race-based affirmative action, particularly if you recognize as a lefty and a progressive that most of the economically marginalized people uh, who might benefit from affirmative action uh, are, uh, you know, might benefit from class-based affirmative action are racial minorities. And so if you institute class-based affirmative action, yes, you're going to help some poor white people, but you're also then going to be able to help all of the, most of the people of color that you would like to help with race-based affirmative action. And it will be unassailable. It, it yeah. won't, it will be, it'll be stronger yep. and, and less uh, vulnerable to political attack and therefore le- more likely to help the people that you want to help. And yes, yes, oh my God, I completely agree. We should be able to have race-based affirmative action because of the 400 years of, of the history of this country and racism and redlining and Jim Crow and just the way economically, uh, particularly African-Americans have been, black Americans have been persecuted and, and deprived of generational wealth. Absolutely, we should have race-based affirmative action. Okay, are we going to die on the hill of that? Absolutely, we should have it when realistically, it doesn't look like we can. And it's so, the, because, so the better strategy yeah. is class-based. But yeah. you say that and then people accuse you of being racist. Well, saying talking about class is also now a dog whistle in a way. Nuance has become a dog whistle. I mean, it's overused. <laughs> uh, and class, it's sort of like, oh, you must be some kind of uh, apologist, you know, a- a- Appalachia. Yeah, you're, a, you're J.D. Vance waiting I mean, to jump out of yeah, the J.D. I mean, Vance closet. Is it, is it because the, the, the poor white people who would be helped by this kind of initiative is not the kind of person that they like? I mean, could they even admit as much? Maybe, maybe the, some of the poor white people would be people we didn't like, but maybe some of the poor people of color that would be helped would be, you know, Latinos who voted for Trump on the right. in those poor counties along the Texas Mexico border. Yeah, I, you know, so so maybe we wouldn't like them either. I probably wouldn't enjoy hanging out with them either. But that's how you get a coalition. That's you know, if it's if it's a majority. Uh, if it's a large majority, there are going to be people within that that you don't like. I mean, that that would seem to be uh, a sign that you're getting somewhere. You know, same-sex marriage, for instance, was really helped by a kind of heteronormative approach to gay <laughs> relationships, right? I mean, it wasn't, I mean, correct me if I'm being reductive, I probably am, but like, it's it's, it's not so much Stonewall as Ellen DeGeneres. And so is that kind of uh, logic... I feel like a lot of people don't even remember that time, even though it doesn't seem that long ago now. What Ellen DeGeneres? Yeah, like you know the the the, the way that um, the the war for you know the battle for same sex marriage was really uh, fought in such a way that it was about you know look hey look look Republicans look you know, homophobes we can uh, be as normal and boring and vanilla as as straight people and we can raise families and that's why you should you know just get get with it. How do you account then for the people like me in that 
the marriage equality fight. And I was traveling all over the country and giving speeches. I wrote a book about uh, marriage and getting married. Uh, and I was a drag queen and uh, my husband and I, now husband, um, were in and openly discussed being in uh, an open relationship. We weren't monogamous. Uh, you know, Andrew Sullivan, uh, who's really one of the, the heroes of the marriage equality movement, Evan Wilson, Andrew Sullivan, um, he was, uh, you know, I pushed back against him at the time because he kept saying on television, why shouldn't committed monogamous gay couples be able to marry? And that drove me up the wall because monogamous is not a standard that straight people have to meet to marry. And so there were a lot of gay people who were saying things, uh, arguing for gay marriage that were really saying, we will accept double standards. And it's not that hard to find gay male couples who aren't monogamous because most aren't. And so mm -hmm. if we say, you know, we've earned this by dint of our monogamous commitments and then they run around, you know, scouring personal ads. <laughs> it's 2015 right. we were right. still fighting for this. So scouring hookup apps like Grindr uh, for all the gay couples who are looking for, uh, you know, a third for a night or a weekend or a partnership, um, we're undermining our own case. You know, the right argued you had to be – to get married, you had to be monogamous, religious, and have kids. All three of were those things are – Were they actually saying that? Oh, oh you mean, yeah. You mean that, wait, they were saying that gay people had to be those things or No, anybody? no. That was the, the right wing. The religious conservatives argued that marriage was about monogamy, which gay people were bad at. Marriage was about religion and faith. And marriage was about having kids. Marriage yes. was about making babies or raising children. Yeah, definitely and that. So, I didn't know they were going so far as to say you had to go to church. To and, and all those married. things were optional for straight people. You could get married and be straight, not be monogamous, get married and be straight, not have kids, get married and be straight and not do it in a church. And so we were fighting for marriage equality, not marriage double standards. Now, we're going to do this the way you guys used to do it. We're going to do this the way you guys th – that was why they ultimately lost the marriage equality debate because it wasn't gay people who redefined marriage. Straight people redefined marriage. And the definition of marriage uh, embraced by straight people in the middle of the 20th century and practiced by straight people even now uh, isn't gendered. It's as gendered as any couple wants to make it. It can yes. be, you know, the wife submit like the Southern Baptist marriage. Wife submits joyfully to the husband. They have a lot of kids and they vote for a lot of assholes, whatever. It could, you know, a straight couple in a femdom relationship where she pegs him and he lives in a cage at the foot of her bed, just as married, just as those, married those, legally. Those, those people can be uh, attendees of Pentecostal churches. As well. <laughs> they I can, mean, really, but they're less likely to go to the Folsom Street Fair. Uh, they're less no. likely to be open about living like that. I, th the, I think there's more uh, more weird shit going on with certain with with pe people would we would be surprised. Uh, you know, some of the some of the most boring vanilla people that I know are the you know good liberals, the NPR listening uh, <laughs> Volvo drivers. Well, so Justin, Doctor Justin Lay Miller at the Kinsey Institute, Indiana University, has researched this. Um, he's got a terrific book uh, called "Tell Me What You Want," and what he's found is that conservative or, or liberals are more likely to fetishize power imbalances. And doesn't that make a mm -hmm. kind of sense? Because fetishes and kinks are often things that feel transgressive, things that feel taboo. And the left is very allergic to any sort of exploitative power imbalance. And so, of course, we fetishize and eroticize that. And right. it makes us feel naughty to, to go there. Um, power imbalances are so arousing. I like to say power imbalances are so arousing that we'll invent them in their absence. Right. That's what BDSM right. and Dom Sub is right. about. 
but liberals are less likely to be into B or liberals are more likely to be into BDSM play than conservatives. Conservatives are more likely to be into cuckolding. You know, conservatives. That's what I was going to say. I I think conservatives cheat more. Oh, they do. They cheat more and they fetishize cheating more. Yes, 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 exactly. Exactly. You know, I want to talk about monogamy for a second here because you've talked about how monogamy for both sexes is a concept that's only been imposed for the last hundred years or so. Um, well, it was imposed on women. On, at right. Okay. Threat of death for millennia and still is in many parts of the world. Exactly. The, yes. The idea that the man in a mated pair of man could be promiscuous, but the women were constrained to the household. So I, I'm curious when that started to, to fall away, uh, it wasn't that rights were extended to women, but they were taken away from men. Exactly. Yes. I've said that forever. Yes. That the, the, the mistake they made, straight people, the mistake you, you motherfuckers made when marriage became more egalitarian was rather than extending to women the same license men had always enjoyed, you imposed on men the same restrictions women had always chafed under. And everyone was always trying to like correlate shit and you just look at the monogamous imposition on men and it correlates perfectly with the divorce rates shooting the fuck up okay but i want to introduce this question of biological imperative of reproductive strategies from from Mm -hmm. an evolutionary standpoint the evolutionary biologist will tell us that men are simply wired to stray more so that would suggest that the reason gay male couples can handle something less than total monogamy is that you have the absence of the woman in that equation, like the, the woman is kind of puts the puts the brakes on. Things. Absolutely. So how do you square that? Like, are we supposed to just accept that gay male couples can handle open relationships and that it's just always going to be more complicated in a relationship where there's a woman in, in, in the equation, either one woman and one man or two women? It, does a woman just mess everything up in terms of <laughs> non-monogamy? yes. But, you know, when we say that men are wired to stray more, we're not saying that women aren't wired to stray at all. When you look at allegedly monogamous species, uh, and now we can genetically test the offspring, what you find is, you know, the men may stray a lot, or not even genet- not even monogamous species, but just pairing species. Uh, the men stray, like, fuck around a lot, but the women fuck around some. And there's, that seems to be where the balance get struck you know women will partner with a male of the species uh who can provide or who seems like genetically whether the provisions are economic or the provisions are genetic provisions um but still shop around a little bit uh and i think that's what's true we are hardwired to seek variety and and we are wired to cheat you know in the, i think it's the netherlands where we've had marriage equality the, the longest of any country They've done studies, and the studies have found, looking at the divorce rates, that the couples who are most likely divorce are female couples, less likely opposite-sex couples, least likely gay male couples. And then you look mm. at monogamy, most likely to be monogamous, lesbian couples, mm. less likely straight, least likely gay. So non-monogamy seems to correlate with relationship stability. Okay, but see, this is the thing. Isn't there some uh, biological wiring mechanism that would make a, a heterosexual man very, very protective of his female partner and therefore non-monogamy would be intolerable? Again, 
it's if the woman is involved, there is going to be some kind of reproductive instinct where I am not going to let, you know, the the vessel uh, for my yeah. It's just, it's so hard to tease all me. these things apart. You know, uh, what is socialization? You know, where does toxic masculinity and patriarchy come into play? Uh, where is toxic masculinity or aspects of toxic masculinity or patriarchy a reflection of some biological reality? Uh, how do you unscramble these eggs? Right. Well, it's, they 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 play off of each other. They play I mean, off and, and they feed each other. And, and and evolution. These are sometimes traits that get selected for. That said, you know, I've you look back to the when I was writing columns in the '90s, and I wrote a lot about AIDS at the time. I would get in trouble with gay men because I would say things like, "You can suck too many dicks." That you know, the more guys you're having sex with that you don't know, the more anonymous hookups you're having via Craigslist in the '90s. The, le- the more likely you're going to wind up in bed with someone, you know, if you're sleeping with 100 guys a month or every few months, uh, you know, you're going to get guys in that pool of anonymous sex partners who don't care about you, who might take the condom off or might not be careful about using the condom. And you're likely to get infected. And, and, and one of the things I said to gay men was, you know, and I say to, I've said to straight people forever – Straight people will sometimes look at gay culture. They'll look at gay male sex culture and they'll be like, wow, gay men are crazy. Look at the amount of sex gay men have. And that is gay. Wow, gay, man. That's crazy. And it's not that some gay men or even most or many fuck around a lot because we're gay men. It's because we're gay men. Because we're men. men. Right. A bathhouse is a whorehouse staffed by volunteers and there's no equivalent in straight land. Why not? Why aren't straight women as willing to hop into bed with anonymous partners or men they've just met, men they picked up on the street? Well, sexual violence, slut shaming, and the genetic and, and the biological yeah. reality. Well, they have more to lose. Right, pregnancy, sexually yeah. transmitted infections are likelier to pass from male to female than female to male, and then that reality of risk is reinforced by patriarchy, by toxic masculinity, by paternal insecurity, by all these other forces. And so, you know, what I was saying to gay men in the 90s at the height of the AIDS epidemic wasn't in the 80s, it was in the 90s. The death rates were going up, 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 up until 95, was that straight men had an external check on their ability to spin out of control sexually, and it was women. It was harder to get a woman to go to bed with you because a woman is taking a greater risk, Right. And we as gay men, we have to find an internal check or we will fuck ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was perceived when I said that in the 90s as deeply sex negative and homophobic on mm-hmm. my part to say to gay men, you can suck too much dick. You can get fucked in the ass too often. You can have too many sex partners. But you're saying that for a reason. It's not a, a moral statement. See, again, isn't it insulting when people say to to make a complicated point uh don't make it to this to this particular group because it's it's causing them harm or it's insulting them i mean it's insulting to to suggest that they can't follow what you're saying you know we see this yeah, all the, the, the time. people who the people who say you know on behalf of the group in defense of the group you shouldn't say that they're always you know when you engage with them they're almost always talking about some hypothetical idiot like I understand the point you're making. Well, I yeah. see the nuance, but there are people out there who are just right. going to feel shamed. There are people out there who are just going to feel judged and then are likelier to feel repressed and then act out and and not be safe and so blah blah. blah. It's always or, the, or like, that your enemy is going to take it and weaponize it. That you're handing it over to your ideological opponent and they're going right. to run with it. 
which was the concern, you know, I wrote the commitment book about marriage and my family and my family's history of marriage and my decision with Terry, my husband at the time to marry. I wrote on the first, I think first two pages that we were not in a monogamous relationship. And some people in the marriage equality movement were very angry at me, right? Because I was handing a weapon Mm -hmm. to the other side. But if we pushed the lie or we engaged in a kind of virtue politics that gay monogamous couples should be able to be married or enough gay couples are monogamous that we should be allowed to be married, that was handing them, I thought, a more powerful weapon. Yes. And it was really easy to say, you know, Bill Clinton's still married. We don't like yank marriage licenses away from people who cheat or are in open relationships. There are swingers conventions in the in Texas that thousands of couples, straight couples, show up at. Why aren't the marriage defenders in the parking lots taking down license plates numbers and then suing to forcibly divorce these couples? Because monogamy clearly doesn't define marriage. And that was a more, in the end, powerful argument. We pulled away from them the argument that gay couples didn't deserve to marry because we were less likely to be monogamous. And maybe the straight couples we were pointing to were a minority of straight couples, but they were still legally married straight couples. So I I think a majority of gay couples are not monogamous. Sometimes you meet gay couples who say they're monogamous. uh, And this this is born out of the research. You know, we went and found gay couples who identify as monogamous, and then they had to weed out the gay couples who said they were monogamous because when they had three ways, they were always together. Oh, that doesn't count. No. Yeah. Like if they're having sex with somebody else together, then it's still monogamy, even if some uh, stranger's dick is in their mouths. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the idea is these, these straight couples who stray the Bill Clintons of the world, there's enough, the, the stigma itself is enough of a glue to keep a family together, for instance, like it's for the sake of the children that you should be deceptive about this and have shame and guilt. That was yeah, that would yeah. Be what's logic. the what was the argument that that um, hypocrisy is the something that vice pays virtue? Oh, that got like tossed that. around a lot during the Clinton impeachment. Right, right, um, right. That even though we all know that not everybody uh, honors their monogamous commitment everybody should at least have the decency to pretend that everybody does yes and then along come gay people and you can't have gay people you can't have openly gay people without a willingness on some of our parts to tell a truth that makes our families to begin with really uncomfortable and you know when you've looked your mother in the eye and told her that you put dicks in your mouth being honest with your friends or your even your coworkers that your relationship is open doesn't seem as scary and you almost arrive at your relationship in the habit of not just having told a difficult truth, but having to have told a difficult truth. And it puts what for a lot of straight couples seems like an impossible truth to share for gay people into perspective. And what seems like a mountain to a straight couple for a gay couple is a molehill. Right. I want to talk for a minute about pornography. You've traditionally been very pro-porn. You've publicly opposed laws restricting access to porn, sex toys, that sort of thing. But pornography 30 years ago and porn today are two different things in many ways. There's a lot of discussion around the idea that kids are seeing porn from a very young age and all the time and that it's informing basically their entire idea about what sex is. So I wonder how that's come across in your correspondence with your 
your letter writers and and if you see things differently now just with respect to the the role that porn plays in the culture it's out there it's ubiquitous um there's some gonzo porn viewing i think that goes on when you're young where you just want to see everything most people who watch porn including most young people who watch porn they seek out the porn that already speaks to them our, our, our desires aren't shaped by pornography i have as most people have stumbled over porn online uh you know shit porn or whatever it didn't then inspire me to go out and get pooped on this is another instance okay. where i think you're we're, not we're talking worried. about team america uh, <laughs> world police are you right that's, that's the, the, another instance movies. where people are worried about hypothetical victims who probably don't exist. Like I know that I didn't, you know, I've seen a lot of crazy porn and I'm not doing all those crazy things, but there are people out there, young people are going to see these crazy things and then do all these crazy things, which is just kind of not how sex works. I was exposed to a lot of straight porn when I was growing up, uh, including, you know, when the VHS cassette came along video porn and all of it was straight and I am not having straight sex. It's just not how, sex works kinks are acquired and and to concede a point they are acquired because you 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 see something or encounter something but your erotic imagination snaps onto it and it's not a process that you can control or anyone can control okay but that's one sorry to interrupt you but that's one phenomenon i think yeah i'm i'm on board with that but i'm curious like because we keep hearing about these young people who think they see sex as a performance. Like they, they, the choking, like I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm 51 years old. I did not know about the choking thing until like three years ago. I, that, and, and these, and how you did got, you find out about it? Uh, because, because, you know, if you follow a lot of these campus sexual assault cases, that seems mm-hmm. to come up again and again. Um, so, well, good. I'm glad you didn't find out about it the way a lot of people find out about it, which is somebody just starts choking them during sex. Because and how did that person find out about it? But see, porn. that's the thing. I, I yeah, don't think exactly. it, I don't think it doesn't have an impact. And we need to have. How do we put this genie back in the bottle? Right? I don't think you can. You need to have sex education. We'll never have decent sex education. But if we did, sex education needs to also educate young people about porn and make them critical viewers and consumers right. of the porn they're inevitably going to consume. People see things in porn and then think this is what is expected of me or what someone would want or what I'm supposed to look like what I'm supposed to look, but that's, you know, going back to the Greeks, like that's always been with us. Uh, beauty standards aren't okay, invented but they, the Greeks in, by the internet. You know. Okay. But they weren't getting, you know, cosmetic surgery. You know, <laughs> and a 15 year old was aspiring to, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I don't mean to sound like a, like a prude. I just, I think no, this yeah, is, I, I want to concede I mean, the point. Even though I am a prude. <laughs> Do, Dr. Debbie Herbenick has done like a lot of research into uh, this phenomena, choking, um, and people initiating this very dangerous, and for some people to have it sprung on them, traumatic, quote unquote, sex play without asking, without seeking consent. Uh, and it's porn that has, that has shaped that, has normalized that. And, what do we do? Well, we have to interfere with porn uh, and, I, and educate around porn. There's a great website, Make Love Not Porn, uh, that Cindy Gallup created. Uh, and the slogan is um, pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Mm-hmm. 
that's a really easy, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, sex ed, it's complicated. And how are we going to do it? It's easy to tell a kid how a baby is made. It's easy to tell a kid what a gay person is. It's easy to tell a kid that porn ain't real life, that porn bears as much resemblance to actual sex and intimacy as action movies do to actual life. Kids understand that right away if someone tells them that we don't talk to kids about porn. And we need to. We have to. Yeah. I think that there needs to be really new and innovative ideas about media literacy just across the board, you know, where, you know, what from fake news to understanding what's on social media to to pornography. I, I, and I think we don't even people older, you know, people of a certain generation wouldn't even know where to begin. There's just an entirely new way of reading the culture uh, and it, people are illiterate about it. So mm-hmm. I think it's all kind of kind of part of that. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but we have to also then account for all the hand-wringing about porn and being exposed to porn turning kids into sex monsters with everything that we're reading uh, and everything the, the, the data is showing us about a sex recession. Yeah, I know. I was going to say it's not turning them into sex monsters. But, it, but it, do you think that the decrease in teenagers and young people having sex is because they're just like – watching porn and masturbating like or they're just it's, it's too intimidating or yeah, they and it, maybe, maybe maybe they are and is that a problem maybe people are holding out for the the sex and sex partners they actually want because they can have sexual experiences uh at home they can have them by themselves they can have them with toys they can watch porn and then seek sex when they're ready with the kinds of people uh and doing the kinds of things that they want to do. I remember what it was like to be young and horny uh, before the internet came along. And a lot of us were out there having sex that we didn't want to have because we wanted to have sex or we wanted, you know, to have release. We wanted to do something. But people are still having sex that they don't want to have. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean <laughs> right. coercive sex. I didn't mean rape. No, I meant I just like, we would seize the opportunity for something to happen because otherwise nothing happened. But it and, seems and like... now people can have virtual experiences where it still it feels like something is happening. And <laughs> if that's leading to lower rates of sexual assault, which we've seen, lower rates of sexually transmitted infections among teenagers, lower rates of pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy among teenagers, maybe every once in a while we should say thank you, porn, and then move on to, you know, arguing about correcting for the other things that porn does that may not be as beneficial. Yes. It's it's very much a yes and, which I think is true with a lot of these a lot of these discussions. Well, no. What do we why, why are you laughing? It's just I just like I just feel, sometimes I feel old, right? I'm old enough to remember when everyone was freaked out <laughs> that why, kids were having that's sex. That's why I want to have you on the show. That's and I'm old enough I'm now to, to 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 participate in the conversation where everyone's freaked out the kids aren't having sex. Old enough to remember rainbow parties Old enough now <laughs> to right. participate in a conversation where the problem is that your daughter isn't at a party trying on different shades of lipstick and putting 12 boys' penis, that, 12 boys' cocks in her party. mouth, which never happened. No, it was not also, a thing. It was a moral that, panic. It was because the Rainbow Party, I remember hearing about that like in the in the early aughts. I feel like I wrote some kind of newspaper column about it, a kind of like, oh my gosh, because that that was not going on in the 80s when I was a teenager. But that was it, it was completely... Uh, apocryphal is that what you're saying yeah and well, as anyone who's ever had a penis in their mouth could exactly. have told you that you know you might get a ring of lipstick around the uh, a yeah. penis but the idea of like choking up on a bat and getting multiple rings yeah. as penises like grew and shrunk between blowjobs it just 
It's not a good way of applying makeup. It it's wouldn't no. have worked. It wouldn't have worked. You Somebody just needed to pause makeup. for a second and went, is this doable? And anybody who'd given a blow, but most of the people who were talking about rainbow parties and freaking out about rainbow parties and benefiting from stoking a moral panic about rainbow parties, of course, were people that no one would suck their dicks and or to let them suck their dicks. Okay. Well, it's also just a, you would you would really need grease paint, like clown <laughs> makeup to pull it off, I think. Not just uh not your not your average L'Oreal. Well, the horror okay. of the grease paint, the smell of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Walk-ins welcome is proud to welcome Jordan Harbinger to the show this week. Jordan is the host of the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast, and we talked about the art of interviewing people, what sees him through the rough times he's experienced, his big picture vision of the future, and how he got his start as one of the first podcasters and a dating coach way back in 2006. This is how my business evolved. Another guy said, hey, I don't really understand. I mean, I understand conceptually all these things that you're saying. But I really want to come see them in person. And I was like, well, I'm not going to have a stranger over to my house. Like, forget it. And he's like, I'll give you $10,000 if I can stay with you for two weeks. And I was like, here's my address. This guy who's like a street magician who was doing really well came to my house in New York where I was working on Wall Street and was like, I just want to kind of follow you around in the evening. To be sure you don't miss Jordan's episode, subscribe to Walk In's Welcome on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So, all right. Well, speaking of being old, I, I really, I, I'm so torn. I, I, I don't, I'm reluctant to touch on this subject. I, I think you know what I'm, what I'm getting at, because as you pointed out, we were, we were corresponding a little bit. You said, you asked me why I, I, I keep talking about trans issues on this show. And my answer was, I don't know. Uh, and <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to, to the extent that I, I want to talk with you about it, I want to kind of just sort of limit the conversation. Is trans activism, I mean, that is something, going back to what we were talking about earlier, that is something where people are saying, we cannot wait, Uh, strategy be gone, Uh, these kids are going to be in real danger if they are not allowed to transition. Uh, where, Where do you even start with this? It's so, so fraught. But I feel like it doesn't need to be as fraught as it is. And part of the reason it's so fraught is because the people who are who have a chance of talking about this with any precision or nuance or care or thoughtfulness are almost like too smart to even take it on. It's just the idiots who are talking about it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Well, trans kids exist. And the issue is that there's a difference, I think. And, and this is where things get really dicey for parents and, and makes the conversation hard is there's a difference between social transition and medical transition and there are consequences to medical transition. And if you make the wrong call or the kid makes the wrong call, as sometimes happens, what then? I would not want to be the parent of uh, of a kid this this sounds terrible. Of course, I would happily parent a kid who was trans. It would be a, a, a real challenge to a parent, right? Like as you face that, if you had a kid who didn't want the puberty to kick in and bring with it secondary sex characteristics that would identify them as the gender that they didn't feel that they were, you're at a fork in the road. And 
you know, the standard used to be, I think, persistent, insistent, consistent identification on the part of the child. And I thought that was a pretty good standard. And that seems to have either been set aside for affirmative care that includes medical transition or just kind of clouded by it or, or, um, well, it's kind of a gatekeeping, uh, it's one of, they, they will put that in the gatekeeping category. Right. (sighs) And so it's, it's difficult. You know, I will talk about my kid for just a second. Two times he came out to me as gay and two times I said, no. I didn't say no. I was like, hmm, we'll see. How old right? was he? About seven and ten or eleven. Okay. And so, or five. And you know, the first time he said he's going to be gay like me and Daddy when he grew up, and we just sat down and we made a list of all the couples we knew, and it was like you know, seventy straight couples or thirty, and you know, five, ten, same sex couples, and we just talked about the odds. Like most people are straight when they grow up you know, the odds are better that you'll be straight, but you could be gay and that would be great. And obviously it'd be fine. Uh, And then when he was older, it was just like, he didn't like girls. And he thought that meant you were gay. And we had to be, and we were like, ha ha ha. When we were your age, we loved girls. It was boys we hated. (laughs) And and so he was just sort of misinterpreting the the data that was coming in for him at, you know, before puberty. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm homophobic. I told my kid twice when he <laughs> thought he was gay that he probably wasn't, that, or that he might not be, and we should just keep an open well, mind. Well, you were it was a, it was a probability thing, right. right? We should wait and see, but it was wait and see. We didn't have to get him hormones to 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 wait and see. You know, we didn't have to. Do, there were no consequences to to waiting and seeing uh, that might have harmed him uh, becoming the you know person the adult that that he saw himself as or wanted to be or ultimately became, right? And so it didn't put me in a difficult position as a parent. I empathize with parents who are in the difficult position of having to make a call here. I think it's the call is made after listening to your kid. Maybe listening to your kid over listening to your kid's therapist or, or counselors. Listening to your kid and is it persistent, consistent, insistent? And then you as the adult have to make, are, are empowered to make, legally, ethically, and morally, the call that's in the best interest of your child. Weighing that against, you know, there are lots of parents out there of pre-gay children who if they could stuff a pill down their throat to make them not gay, they would. There are lots of homophobic parents out there with pre-gay, pre-lesbian, pre-bi children there are transphobic parents out there who will do anything. You know, they're homophobic parents who would stuff a pill down their gay kid's throat that even at the risk that that pill might kill them, even if there was, you know, a 20% chance that that pill would kill that kid, there are homophobic parents out there who are homophobic enough to take that chance, to risk that if that pill existed. There are transphobic parents out there who would rather imperil their kid's life than let their kid be their kid. And it's just, it's a harrowing minefield uh the the whole i don't want to call it a debate these are human beings and lives and it's it's just i think we just have to have the grace to, to to stand back and say this is difficult for everybody and people are figuring this out and some people are going to make the right choice 
for themselves or for their kids. And some people are going to make the wrong choice and some people are going to have the best motives and some people are going to have the worst motives. But we can't, you know, if you and I came to some agreement, you know, we got all the podcasters who are always talking about trans kids and trans issues to come to a consensus. Okay, then what? How's that enforced? It isn't. We're going to have to like get through this and then figure it out down the road. And that's scary. And, and, you know, you can hear the reluctance of my voice to talk about this because I'm not necessarily like, look what I did with my own kid when he told me he was gay. I'm not necessarily in the affirm, affirm, affirm when a kid comes out to you as LGBT. I didn't. And affirm my own kid when he came what, out to me as LGBT. What if your kid had said, I'm gay and I want to go to school tomorrow and let everybody know and I want this to be part of my identity? Like I wanna I wanna lead with this. We live in Seattle. That okay, would not so it have, been, have a been just boring. Right. <laughs> okay. What a basic <laughs> If you know, if I if we were living in Ogden, Utah, if we were living in I don't know, but fuck Southern <laughs> Illinois somewhere. But fuck is, uh, yeah. Well, but, but, uh, <laughs> you would think but fuck Illinois would have changed its name <laughs> yeah, by now because they're so homophobic yes, there. But if we were living in but fuck, yeah. But we were living in but fuck and he wanted to come out in middle school or high school, I probably would have been like, let's move. If, 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 if you need to be out, we need to, and I've said this to families of, of queer kids. Like if your queer kid is being persecuted or you have a pre queer kid, if you have a kid that you know, and like parents usually know is going to be queer. Look around and ask yourself where you're at and ask yourself if, you know, having the two acre house in a, a rural community where your kid isn't going to be safe, your little princess sparkle magic girly boy isn't going to be safe in middle school. Move. Think about moving. Right. I agree. Moving is the solution to many things, I think. But yes, that's a that's a very yeah. Very like I, I get the I've, I, I, you know forever, but especially after the it gets better project, I got letters from parents saying, "Oh, I'm so concerned. My kid is, you know, came out to me at eleven, twelve, and we live in a really shitty place surrounded by really shitty people." And I would write back to them because they would email me. I'd write back to them and say, "When are you moving?" <laughs> and I couldn't, and I was like, "Well, I don't want to be like the Catholic worst case scenario disorder king, but." How are you going to live with the regret if your kid is bullied to death? Right, but it's more expensive to live in places where Yeah, you might have to live in a smaller place, but a better place for your kid. I would do anything for my kid except move. I heard that from people. Oh gosh. So, I mean, getting back to this, I just what is your advice to somebody who just wants to be able to talk to either an act either a a trans ally, a trans person themselves, and say, I I believe, I am not denying your humanity. I believe that there are trans people, that there have always been, that there are trans kids, but there is this other phenomenon going on of um, an improbable number of young people, often in clusters, announcing trans identities. And that is a separate category from being a trans person and why can't we sort of hold these two things separately? What is it about this particular uh, activist community that makes that distinction so difficult? Well, a lot of the people in the activist community are older, may not have gotten the reception they wanted. Well, when these they are came really young people, young activists refusing to, to 
separate these things? Well, I mean, obviously, you're, they feel as if you're bank shot saying that their identity isn't valid or isn't healthy and shouldn't have been, they shouldn't have been encouraged to, to go in that direction, which is something I heard when I came out as gay, you know, as a teenager. Um, and we have to be able to look at everything that's going on and assess it. I feel like I've said this to, to other people privately. I don't think I've ever said this in a microphone and I hope I don't regret this. I feel like, you know, there's the Nicene Creed in Christianity, which is just like this thing you mumble that's kind of the basics, like the things that all Christians believe. You know, God, Jesus died, the Son of God, and there's a few other things on the list. It doesn't include shit like transubstantiation. Not all Christians believe that. It doesn't include shit like Mary ascending into heaven. Not all Christians believe that. But if you can endorse and embrace and mumble the Nicene Creed, you're a Christian. I feel like we need a Nicene Creed for trans rights. Like these are the things that if we can all agree on this, then you're not going to be accused of being transphobic. And then we can continue to wait for the evidence to come in and continue to assess and, and learn as we go about what is or isn't happening and, and, and how gender identity does or doesn't work. I can understand, like when I was a kid, they said gay people recruited, gay people were a cancer, gayness was a disease that was spreading. So when I see trans rights activists and some of my friends who are trans and some of my friends who are trans and trans rights activists react to is it risible or risable? I never know. That's a word I read all the time oh. and never say out loud. Risible. Kind of risible. The risible the social contagion. Like, oh my God, of course that's going to be a red flag in, in front of a bull. Yeah. That, like, it's literally to frame trans people or transness as a disease or an illness. Or a, or a trend or a fashion. Right? Mm, we don't describe you know, scrunchies as a social contagion. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should, but no, no. <laughs> no but I nobody see what said you're Crocs or UGG boots were social contagions, and so uh, yeah, I, I disagree. But that said, and you know, I feel this is what I was afraid to come on your podcast because I can just feel myself putting my head. in You were afraid? No. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't want to have this conversation. Because I don't. Because this isn't. You're not allowed to be nuanced about this. I've seen kids that I knew who identified when they hit, we began to approach puberty as something other than, but and it, what I saw were some kids who were afraid of, and puberty is fucking scary. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Puberty is terrifying. Yeah. And there is, I think some people, some, some young people who are opting out of puberty, opting out, not opting out of puberty by going on blockers, opting out of what puberty is imposing on them by saying I'm non-binary, by saying I'm, trans and i think puberty is especially terrifying for young women suddenly getting a lot young girls getting a lot of it you know attention expectations male sexual aggression is terrifying and if you can like there are some people who are hitting the pause button by saying i am not female and they're, but they're sort still going to have puberty all right but you're you're talking about just somebody tr- say saying that they're non-binary but not or for example, non-binary, but not doing right. anything medical. And so because I think there's some of that going. I think there's some of that going on, yeah. and that complicates things for trans rights activists. It complicates the conversation. Um, it may lead to these clusters that would seem to 
exist in too great a number to for it to be the sort of broad and general distribution or the the, the right. not so broad and general distribution of you know transness occurring in populations. And well, so, we used to think that one out of ten people was gay, right? And I, it was I, a lie. I actually that was wrong. <laughs> See, I actually thought that was true. This this speaks to you know my social circles and like where I went to college and stuff. I actually I never questioned that. Uh, I, I, so it's not that's not true. I guess that doesn't make any sense. Well, that was the Kinsey Institute studies from the the fifties that found that one in ten people had had a same sex experience or oh, well, regularly engaged okay. in same sex yeah. sex. Doesn't make you gay. Doesn't make you gay identified. Um, there are studies that came along, you know, Pew Research studies, studies in the nineties and aughts that showed that it was, you know, three to five percent. But now with mm-hmm. like Gen Z, and I don't have all this in front of me. This is the sort of stuff I could, I would be Googling if I was putting it into a column to make sure I'm getting this right. Uh, you know, a third or 30% or something identify as queer, but that term queer has become so all-encompassing. Yeah, I don't know what that means, I have to say. Do you? Do you have a quick definition of queer? No, but I do know that when I meet people who tell me they were, they're femme-presenting assigned female at birth allosexual phallophiles and therefore a part <laughs> of the queer community, and all that means, femme-presenting assigned female at birth allosexual phallophile, all that means is straight girl. <laughs> And when I meet somebody who says that, just, okay, sure. I guess this is better than a time when nobody wanted to be associated with us or associated with queerness. It's better now that there's, and I don't think it's just about social cachet. Uh, I think some of it is about wanting to distance yourself from the expectations of hetero sexuality, heteronormativity, cishet culture, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And if you can just put a little daylight between you and all of that, right. you kind of get a get out of jail free card that allows you to write your own rules for your life. That And that's what, you know, mm. gay people got to do. You know, when we came out as gay, when the modern gay rights movement started, which didn't start at Stonewall, started really in the 50s or the 30s in Berlin, depending on who you want to counter the 20s in Berlin, we got to create we got to opt into what we wanted to opt into and opt out of what we wanted to opt out of and i think that's some of what you're seeing with you know people who say well i'm a member of the queer community because i'm a demisexual or a sapiosexual or a frasexual right and you can be straight 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 only completely heterosexual only interested in opposite sex sex and demisexual and sapiosexual and Phrasexual. You can also be gay and all three of those things, or bi right. and all three of those things. So I don't think they're sexual orientations. I think they're kind of relationship preferences. Well, they're they're personality traits. Personality traits have turned into identity categories. Well, I, I don't. I would. I don't think they're personality traits. You know, if you're the kind of person who just doesn't feel sexual desire in the absence of a strong emotional attachment, I don't think that's a personality trait. I think that's. Uh, I don't know. I, I think is it that's part of your temperament. I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah, it's just part of your kind of psychological makeup. Or maybe I'm still reacting to the, the term personality because so much of personality we're encouraged to regard as self constructed. And, oh. you know, I, I know people who struggle for years and then realize <laughs> about themselves that they just can't be in a long term committed sexual relationship. They just lose interest in someone sexually. And it's not just men who do that, women do that too. And if they have a term to describe that, 
like phrase sexual that allows them to communicate with sex partners, allows them to have a self-conception where they don't then make commitments they can't keep, where they don't feel like they're failing at sex, but this is how sex works for them or failing at relationships, but this is how relationships work for them. That's great. I don't think that, and if you want to call that queer and stand with me, okay. Mm. Even as you're, you know, only having opposite sex sex all your life, you're just having lots of sex partners or lots of, you know, uh, short relationships. Uh, okay, sure, sure, whatever. Okay. Um, if you claim to be as oppressed as the lesbian teenager growing up on the Mormon compound in Utah, yeah, fuck you. That's not true. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. And, you know, again, and I know we're going to wind down here in a minute, but, you know, I I, I find the, the trans discussion so fascinating, partly because it seems to me that if you really care about trans people, you wouldn't want to muck up the waters like this. It feels appropriative for people to be saying that they're trans when there are actual trans people actually suffering and but, but where, going but through things. But then we don't know that maybe those people, some of them who say they are trans, but but that, that like that, that's the ultimate kind of gay people. It feels you know, an insult to trans people that some people who say they're trans might not be trans by my judgment. Okay. Yeah, right. I know. Who gets to make that call? Just let people identify how they want to identify. Let people figure it out. Let people make mistakes. And then the dust will settle and we'll, we'll know and, and, and we'll see. And yeah, what can, what can you do about it? I'm increasingly like, it's Chinatown, Jack, about it. Right. (laughs) Recognizing that it's not trans people who are harmed by other people who might not be trans identifying as trans. I know people who identified as, mostly lesbians who weren't who ultimately determined that they weren't gay or lesbian. Right. I wasn't harmed by that. They may have wasted years of their lives. They may have broken hearts um, as they figured that the well, fuck out. But okay, me but as the, a gay person, I wasn't, the, so it's, it just seems disingenuous for you to say my real concern here ultimately are the legitimately trans people okay. as if we can, as if we can figure out who those who's as if it's our right to say who legitimately is or isn't no i know well that's always the problem no i i I get you but there's also like it it's not it's not good strategy like people who are transphobic who actively either don't think trans is a real thing or they they hate these people it makes it easy for them to say oh look this this isn't a and, that, and that's thing. nothing new. How long have gays and lesbians have, it, have been having to deal with the ex gays and ex lesbians who are used as a club? There are some people who are who claim that they've walked away from the gay lifestyle, that they are no longer gay, and they and the right has tried to weaponize those people without success. And so are there that a lot some of those people, people may still? sure, and they're all Jesus freaks. They're all mm-hmm. self hating. Yeah people who think that their imaginary sky daddy isn't going to let them into the never-ending five-year-old's birthday party when they die if they don't stop sucking cocks. But they're, but they're actually saying they're ex-gay. It's not like people who are just... Yeah, they say, they say that they, you know, they're cured, they're okay. ex-gay. Some yeah. claim that they, you know... Famously, Alan Chambers, who ran Exodus International, which is the biggest ex-gay ministry said and ultimately walked away from it said it was harmful apologized to the gay community but when he was running it he said the opposite of homosexual isn't heterosexual the opposite of homosexual is holy and gave away the game that this was about imaginary sky daddy says no this wasn't about what i desire Mm. and there are i forget what they're called they're these things you can put your dick in to measure arousal you know, oh yeah, most people that to was pornography. like a Kinsey thing, right? I, yeah, one of their 
devices. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've used that for all sorts of different kinds of studies of human sexuality arousal responses. And the ex-gays will never volunteer to put their dicks in those tubes and watch gay pornography and straight pornography because they know they're lying. But, you know, my point isn't whether there's any validity to this gay shit or not. My point is, would to you would be, can you see how this would come across as concern trolling? That yes, I'm, yes. what I'm worried for are the real trans people who may be harmed, that some people may detransition, and we need to therefore erect every barrier we can so that the people who aren't actually trans don't clear that hurdle. And somehow magically, the people who are will easily clear that hurdle. And you can't do that. I mean, we can't do that. You will harm the actual trans people you claim to care about if you erect those hurdles to protect the not actually trans people who you suspect might be in their number. And so you just have to let people live and do their own thing and let this moment where there may be some people identifying as trans who are not, just as there have always been some people who identified as gay or lesbian who weren't or now identify as straight who aren't, you have to let this play out. Right. It's the medicalization element that is Yeah, like I said when I talked about parents, here. that's yeah. that's that's the 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 fork in the road that feels very consequential. And and I can imagine being a young trans person and knowing that I'm about to hit puberty and just feeling sick about it. I mean, I remember being like a, you know, having, you know, a, a dysmorphic teenage girl myself it's it's bad enough like oh this is coming i don't like this in myself i don't i wish we talked i I wish we talked about it i think that would be a a more helpful conversation than a bunch of cis than a bunch of cis people trying to you know talk about who may be or may not be trans Mm -hmm. is a conversation where we take a big step back and we talk about how terrifying puberty is i remember i think all of us remember I, i actually this comes up in conversations about sex negativity because there's a lot of people in the sex positivity movement who think we can eradicate sex negativity, and I don't think we can because of our extended adolescence, because of how long it takes us to get to sexual maturity. And in that time, we have reason and we can, we, we're conscious of the difference between us as pre-puberty humans and all those post-puberty humans we see running around, including our parents. And we're told about sex at some point, you know, we're like five or younger, we're told about sex and we react typically in horror. Like you did what? Dad put his penis where? Ew. And I'm going to, I'm never going to do that. That's disgusting. We have this reaction that, you know, little, um, you know, dogs don't have because they reach sexual maturity in like three minutes. They don't have, and they can't, they don't have speech or, or reason. And so they can't, you know, anticipate the horrors of that. We do, we spend years anticipating the horrors of sexual maturity. And then it comes, and we're like, it's not just that, you know, anticipating the horrors of it. We say to ourselves, most of us, when we're little kids, I'm never going to do that. That's disgusting. And we think adults look ridiculous. And we see them humiliate themselves and fall on their faces. And we're just like, yeah, oh, that's gross. No, never. And then along comes puberty and we are drafted. The lie we're told when we're children is that we will grow up and have sex. The reality is we grow up and sex has us, and it is scary because we are not in control of it. Whether we're gay or straight, whether we have kinks or not, we are not in control of our sexuality. And that is terrifyingly disempowering. And if we had a dis, you know, if one of the things we got in sex ed for kids was not puberty is a magical time, you're becoming an adult. Just like puberty for most of us is fucking scary and you're going to feel powerless 
And in a way you are, and you have to learn to roll with that. Yeah, you're right. It's one of those things like, why aren't you having a great time at this party that everyone's pretending they're having a great time at, but most people really aren't. Yeah. <laughs> Especially That's introverts it. like me. My solution is don't go to parties. Yeah. My solution is always to move. So I think if uh, if we've achieved nothing else in this conversation, and, and don't I, go to parties and move. And to bring it back to your favorite topic, like there may be some people who are taking refuge in non-binary or trans identities because they're terrified of puberty and they think that they're unique. They think that their fear is what means they must not, that puberty must not be right for them. And if we could just universally acknowledge that puberty is terrifying for everybody and not just in like shows like uh, Penis or Pen15 uh, and in, you know, not just uh, on uh, Bad Mouth, but just generally as a culture and it was a part of our sex education. and the feelings and fear and terror of kids as puberty comes for them might help, might result in fewer people hating themselves for who they are sexually. And that's not, and I don't just mean, you know, sexual minorities when I say that. There are a lot of straight people who hate themselves because they oh, have yeah. not other non-normative desires besides uh, mate choice. Well, Dan, Thank you so much for coming on. I know you had fear and terror about coming on the show. You of all people, I can't believe that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a compliment. I did it anyway. That I, that I managed to make you make you nervous, but it was it was a great conversation. And thanks, just thanks for being around all these decades. You know, you're a you're an important figure for us Gen Xers. Oh, that's sweet of you to so. say. And, and I've been a, a fan of your writing forever. Oh, thank um, you. No. I have all your books. I've read them. Uh, I, I love your columns. And I love that you're you're brave. There's not a lot. <laughs> that I won't stop talking about trans stuff. It's not my favorite topic. It's not my favorite topic. I think, as a, I think as, a, as a percentage of an episode of yours, I, I, we kept it to I know. I, I held up. Less than most. I'm not going to. Yeah. No, the problem is, is like I, I did it a few times and then now everybody keeps coming at me and want, wanting me to do it. But I'm going to uh, I'm going to going to ease out of it. There's there's other things. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. So the people, you know, there's there was one week where I listened to like all my podcasts and every one of them was cis people talking about the trans stuff, trans issues. Ultimately, trans people are going to drive this and. I, yeah, I wish. And yes. figure it out. And, and yes. it's going to sort itself. I don't say it sort itself out and there will be fewer trans people or more trans people or no trans people. That's not what I mean. But it is going to play out. And as a gay man, it's obvious that a lot of the grief that's thrown at trans people now is just repackaged shit that was thrown at us. From recruiting children, accusations of pedophilia, whether you're going to let gay people into locker, whether you want gay people in locker rooms with your kids. These were all very... Uh, loudly debated topics when I was a gay 12 year old and they traumatized me and I empathize with the gay or the trans 12 year olds out there who are having to endure these conversations right now. Yes. Oh, agreed. But that's why we need to talk about them very, very carefully and thoughtfully and compassionately. So thank you for doing so. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Dan Savage. Dan's celebrated sex and advice column, Savage Love, celebrates its 30th anniversary this fall. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. Once again, if you'd like to get this podcast early and ad-free, please join the Patreon page at any level 
by visiting patreon.com slash the unspeakable. That will also get you VIP status to the first ever unspeakable Zoom hangout on August 19th. This will be a place for listeners to get together and talk about all sorts of things, starting with the topic I covered in last week's episode, The Mid-Career Pivot. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. It is free and available to everyone, but Patreon supporters can hang out with me in the green room uh, for half an hour ahead of time. So again, go to theunspeakablepodcast.com for registration information. Unrelatedly, but not unimportantly, August 20th is the application deadline for the weekend-long private workshop in personal essay and memoir writing that I run out of my home in New York City. The next workshop will be the weekend of September 25th, 26th. For more information, if you're interested in that, visit daummasterclass.com. Space is very limited, especially due to COVID precautions, but please do apply. Uh, if this interests you. I do these workshops uh, about four or five times a year, and this is the first one I've done since the pandemic started. So it's going to be a, a special one. Finally, if you'd like to support the show in a way that involves no money whatsoever, you can always leave a rating or a review. Positive, please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that actually helps a lot, and I often forget to mention it. So you can keep that in mind. Anyway, that is more than enough for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. 